0: Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Forest View. Hope you've been enjoying the uh, summer heat wave and hope that it will maybe pass soon. But uh, We're back uh, in our ser- series on the Psalms, Grounded in the Psalms. And uh, I'm, for those who don't know me, I'm Mark, Mark Evans. And I'm glad to be with you this morning. So a few months ago, I was listening to a podcast, the Freakonomics podcast. And uh, this particular episode was about sort of the American political landscape, um, already we're afraid. Um, and, but on it, they, said, they described something I thought was really, really fascinating. Um, they were talking about the way in which landmark legislation had been passed over the past century. So here's some examples just to kind of what they were talking about. So in 1935, the Social Security Act passed with 90% support for the Democrats, and 75% support from the Republicans. In 1964, the Civil Rights Act passed with 60% support from the Democrats and 75% support from the Republicans. Fast forward to more recent times. The Affordable Health Care Act, Obamacare, passed with zero support from the Republicans. And in 2018, the Trump administration's tax reform bill passed with zero support the Democrats. Now, what I found fascinating about this was the way in which it kind of paints a picture of our cultural space, cultural moment. Um, That we've moved from a society of consensus building to a society of polarization and division. And this is not just an American issue. This is a global issue. Our global conversations are full of vilification, of mudslinging. We have words now that we're inventing like othering. We are a divided people. Our discourse is divided. And Canada is not immune. If you want to ruin your day, here's a recommendation for you. Go to cbc.ca and go to the comment section on any article that is at least somewhat politically linked. And there you will find people saying vicious and uncharitable things to each other on both sides of an issue. We have lost our ability as a culture to come together. We are a divided people. And in the midst of this place, we find the church. And we try to figure out what it means to be the church at this time. And unfortunately, at least how it seems often, is that our way of relating to each other has more in common with the climate of our culture than it does with what we see in Scripture. And so with that in mind, I'd like us to turn to our psalm for this morning, Psalm 133. A song of ascents of David. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. They may be thinking he picked this song because it's just three verses. Uh, uh, not, not true. And in fact, that may be long, so I've got to get going here. Um, so... Here, the psalmist, David begins the psalm by drawing our attention to something that is not just, okay, not just somewhat good, but something that is really good. How good is it when God's people live together in unity? And more than just good, it is something that is both good and pleasant, so maybe you can relate to this from some point in your life. But here's a little something I was reflecting on as I thought about this. It's a, a scene you might find frequently, actually, around the Evans family dinner table. So what you'll see is Catherine and myself pleading with our children to just eat their vegetables. <laughs> They're good for you. But our kids are not convinced, and they are having none of it. All they want to know is how many pieces do I have to choke down (laughs) so that I can get dessert? Because even if that's not good for you, at least it's pleasant. But in Psalm 133, David is telling us that when we live life together in unity, it is the best of both worlds. It is both good and pleasant. People who live and work harmoniously together can accomplish much more than people who pull in different directions. That is part of what this is about. Now, in order to communicate the goodness and pleasantness of unity, the Psalm gives us two images. And the first one is this. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard down on the collar of his robe. Couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> and I'm so shocked. I thought Cole was on vacation. Then I saw him here when I got here this morning because I thought it was an amazing opportunity to do a live demonstration of like how good <laughs> and pleasant this is. But I wasn't prepared because I thought he wasn't here. Now, in order to clarify things, the psalm goes even further and gives us a second image, which, of course, makes it all the more clear. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. I'm done. <laughs> okay, let me say a few things. All right, so we'll go back to uh, the oil. In most Near Ancient, uh, ancient, near ancient Near Eastern cultures, whew, that was a tongue twister. It was seen as an act of hospitality to anoint guests with oil as they came to your house. This had a f- bunch of reasons. One, it was a nice refreshment for, in a dry cu- for your skin in a dry culture, but in a climate, but also it gave up a nice fragrance that was pleasing and uh, much appreciated. And so I think that while Psalm 133 has this in mind, there's also something else going on too, because the Psalm makes reference to Aaron. And in doing so, it starts to point us towards the sacred oil of Exodus chapter 30. And I don't want to get on too far a rabbit trail here, but here we go. So. In Exodus 30, God gives Moses a recipe to make oil. And the recipe includes myrrh, cinnamon, fragrant fragrant cane, cassia, mixed in olive oil. And this was the oil that was meant to be used to anoint the tent of meeting, to anoint the instruments used in worship and sacrifice, and to anoint the priests. And so, in Exodus 30 we read this as God commanding Moses, and anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. Say to the Israelites, this is to be my sacred anointing oil for generations to come. Do not make any oil with the same formula. It is sacred, and you are to consider it sacred. So there's a special oil that's supposed to be used for one purpose. And so for Aaron, as the oil is running down his beard and onto his robes, this is a part of setting him apart for his priestly service, which leads him to being involved in more good things. A number of other ones. For instance, he gets to serve God and his people in this special special role. He gets to offer sacrifices on the people's behalf. And he gets to represent God to the world. And so as David uses this image of Aaron particularly, having this oil poured on him, I think he's saying, what the psalmist is saying, is that unity amongst God's people is not only good and pleasant in itself, but that it is a sacred thing that leads to other good things. That it opens the door to new possibilities, to new ministry, to important work. And then we have this second image, this image of the dew of Hermon. So Mount Hermon, is located in North Palestine, and it stands about 9,200 feet above sea level. And due to this height, it is able to capture a great deal of precipitation in a rather dry climate, in a dry part of the world. And so meltwater, from its snow-covered peaks, feeds springs at the base of the mountain, and these form streams and rivers, and eventually merge and flow into the Jordan River. And this runoff is ideal for the creation of a region that is very fertile, filled with forests and fields and vineyards. And so I think what the psalmist is saying is that unity amongst God's people results in flourishing and thriving life. Now there are a couple of other things that these two images, this image of the oil and the image of the dew, both have in common. So the first is that there is a movement from above to below. The oil starts at Aaron's head, but flows down over his beard and onto his robes. And the dew of Hermon descends, and then in the image of the psalm, it is as if the dew of Hermon descends all the way to Mount Zion, which is far in Israel's south. So there's movement from up to down. And then there is, secondly, this image of abundance. It wasn't just a little bit of oil, Dipped on Aaron's head that allowed it to get down to his robes. It was a lot of oil. And this image of the dew making its way all the way from Mount Hermon to Mount Zion is also an image of excess, of extraordinary abundance. And so the psalm concludes with these words For there the Lord bestows his blessing even life evermore. And just like the oil and the dew flow abundantly from above, so too do God's blessings come down on his people when we do the hard and important but fulfilling work of building and maintaining unity. It is good and pleasant, and God meets us there. Now, somewhere between the ages of 17 and 20, I don't know exactly the, the year, I read a book by Francis Schaeffer that was called The Great Evangelical Disaster. Now, in this book, there was a section on Christian unity that had a profound impact on me when I was a young man, I guess. Um, and it really convinced me of the centrality and importance of unity, both for the church and in my own life as a follower of Jesus. Now, before I tell you what it was in the book that had such a profound impact on me, I first want to take us through a little bit of a walk through Scripture on the theme of unity. So there's some images in Scripture that I think point to unity. The first, I think, is really significant, and we don't often talk about this much, and we don't think about it much as Christians, although I think we should, is that, Unity is fundamental to the very nature of God's being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, though distinct, are bound together in a oneness of unity. And what this tells us, what this reminds us about, is the fact that at the heart of the universe, there is a unified community of love, that we are meant to to emulate, that we are meant to, as we are transformed into his likeness, that that is a unified likeness. And this mystery, I think, is woven into the fabric of creation. So God declares that though they are distinct, the man and the woman, they come together and form a mystical unity as they become one flesh. That a unity is made out of two separate beings, And what these two images show us is that unity is forged not through sameness, but through the embrace of distinction. And I think this is made even more clear in the next image. In the New Testament, Paul describes the church as a body. And here we clearly see that unity is not uniformity. Just as our bodies consist of different parts with different functions, So it is with God's people. Though we are different, we are meant to reflect the fundamental oneness of the body. The eye and the foot, though very different and with unique roles to play, but they're part of the same body. In fact, they are part of each other. We are called to be a body, to be one. Now, in addition to these images, the Scripture has a number of commands and declarations about unity, there's many, and I've tried to shorten it down until I've picked three. But there's more, you could, you could go find your own some other time, we could talk about it. But um, here's three that I think are good. So, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone, Romans 12:18. So that's one call. As much as it depends on me, as much as I can control, in a relationship, and that I can't can't control the other person, I can only control myself. But as much as it depends on me, live at peace with everyone. In Ephesians 4, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. That we are called to make every effort to keep unity with one another. Then again in Philippians chapter two, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And here what we see is that our, our unity is rooted in the fact that each and every one of us have to go to Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, for our comfort and strength as we walk through this life in the struggles and pains that it brings. He is the one who loved us while we were still sinners. He is the one who calls each one of us friend. And this is more than just a happy coincidence. It is actually an empowerment to unity. Because Christ knows what it is like to love and forgive his disciples who blatantly misunderstood his message at times and who made epic failures of themselves. And if Christ can forgive them and restore them and walk in unity with them and include them and bring them into his work, then he can give us the power to do that with one another when those things happen face us. Now in addition to commands and verses like this, the New Testament also boldly declares that through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, something new has been created. That God has done something. And what has he done? He's made a new unity possible. In Ephesians Paul writes that Christ has destroyed the barrier that divided the Jews from the Gentiles, and that in doing so, he has made one new humanity. And this reality is stated clearly and emphatically in Galatians chapter 3, where we read, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith, for all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, as I referenced at the beginning, we live in a divided world, and we're divided along many lines. And these divisions mentioned here in Galatians, ethnic divisions, Jew or Greek, socioeconomic divisions, slave or free, or divisions between men and women these divisions are still at play in our world today. But this should not be the case in the church. We are called to be an alternate community who models for the world the way in which division and distinction can be overcome in Christ and brought to unity. Some of those distinctions are just natural, regular distinctions that are fine in amongst themselves, but they can push us to disunity. Some of those distinctions are divisions for a variety of other reasons that, where we have to check our heart because of the things we're bringing into that relationship. But in both cases, God is calling us to be unified together. Now sadly, what the church is known for often is not this. And that brings us to the words of Jesus and back to my encounter with Francis Schaeffer. So, we don't know a lot about Jesus' prayer life. I mean, the scriptures tell us frequently that Jesus goes off to pray, but it, the gospel writers don't tell us much what he prayed, other than on a few occasions. And John chapter 17 is one of those times. This prayer takes place just before Jesus is arrested. And in this prayer, he first begins by praying for his disciples. He prays some things for them. Then if you go on in John chapter 17, you see that he prays for those who will come after us, him, after them, us. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, the church, down through the ages. And what is it that he prays for us as he's going to the cross? He prays this. That all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved me, have loved them even as you have loved me. Now Schaeffer called this the final apologetic. And this is what he wrote in reflecting on this verse. We cannot expect the world to believe that the Father sent the Son, that Jesus' claims are true, and that Christianity is true, unless the world sees some reality of the oneness of true Christians. When I read those words as a young man, I found them incredibly convicting and incredibly important. There is an evangelistic necessity to our our unity if the church is unable to live out a vibrant unity, then the world, Jesus is saying, has the right to question our message and to doubt our good news. This is profound stuff. It's not just, hey, you and me and Jesus, or me and Jesus. We're in this together, and what we do together has a huge impact on the world who is watching. And sometimes they're not watching that much anymore, but like, you know, maybe because we haven't been very good at this. Schaeffer continued to say that these words should make us cringe. I mean, you can imagine the perspective of any one of our neighbors driving across Burlington, passing dozens of churches with different names and different denominational or non-denominational affiliations. And the image that they would get is one of division, competition, conflict. And we have to know that as we search our own hearts and as we think about Christians in other places, worshiping in other parts this morning around the city, we know that maybe sometimes our hearts, speech, our hearts, our speech, our actions don't really contradict that image. And here at Forest View, in our recent journey, we have kind of had underscored for us the pull towards this unity that can exist within a local congregation. I almost feel like there is a natural pull towards disunity, towards entropy in that sense, where we um, need the spirit to help us put it back together. You know, there's a number of things that have the potential to bring about division. And again, as I said, some of those things are perfectly natural good things. They can be the things mentioned in Galatians, ethnic divisions, socioeconomic, male-female. But there could be things like disunity over how church culture should be or our personality differences with another believer or our personal preferences for things to be this way rather than that. And all these things, when they're into the mix and then they're stoked with pride or fear or selfish ambition or mistrust or gossip and slander, all of a sudden there is a very dangerous mix that can bring about a lot of hurt, a lot of disunity, and we don't become the presence that God wants for us to be and needs for us to be in our world. Now, as I was Doing some research this week, and as I was reading different people's perspectives on unity, one thing that I saw a few times was that people would say, Yes, Jesus calls us to be unified, but it's acceptable for there to be division if we don't agree on certain things around doctrine or whatever. And I see to say, since I'm up here, that I personally couldn't disagree more but I want to be unified with people who disagree with me. Um, I can remember being a young youth pastor outside of Ottawa and one night having dinner at a family who had two youth in the youth group, and the father was someone who had experience in youth ministry. Uh, Not youth ministry, just ministry. He'd been working in ministry for a long time. And so I asked him a question, and I said, why do you think that there are so many different opinions amongst Christians when we are guided by the same Spirit. Now, we pondered that for a bit, and we did not come up with a good answer. And I have to say to you that the question still perplexes me to a bit today. Like, I still think about that quite a bit. And what I've come to wonder, and this is like, pure speculation, there's no like chapter and verse that I can give you for this, this is just Mark talking out loud, um, is that whether God is waiting for us to figure these things out in unity, that whether God's spirit is calling for us to be worked together, and that until we do, we're gonna have all this divide. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue truth together because I'm quite sure that unity does not mean some sort of, like, blah, um, like, we just whatever. I know that when I meet God face-to-face, I'm going to discover things about him that are true, and there are things about him that are not. And I'm going to discover that there are things about his plans and purposes that are in alignment with those, and there are things in our world that are not. And I'm also sure that I will discover that I had a bunch of that stuff right, and that there were some things that I didn't know, I didn't have quite right, that I was wrong. And I've heard, I remember, uh, I don't know where I heard it, but someone saying that we're all heretics to a certain degree somewhere. So in the meantime, what do we do with that? We're called to pursue God and his truth and who he is. And we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, as it says in Philippians. We're called to live into our convictions, to live into what we have learned and what we have known and what we become convicted of. And we are called to walk in a spirit of unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ, protecting one another, honoring each other, caring for one another, struggling together to figure out what it means to be God's people in this broken world. Because in this world, we will have differences. But unity is only proven when it is tested. Otherwise, it's just like a slogan or like a word. It needs to have flesh and blood and teeth and skin in the game. Is it conceivable that there might be a reason for Christians to divide? Perhaps. But only as an absolute last resort and only with many tears. And certainly not as easily as we are prone to do. So how do we go about modeling unity or living into unity despite good differences that can lead to division? Or things that we disagree upon that can lead to division? I have a few thoughts, but I need to say as I start this that I'm not gonna be able to wrap this up and put a bow on it and make it like here's, good, we're good. This is hard. I think unity is harder than division it is way easier to be divided. It is way easier to be suspicious and to cast aspersions than it is to come together and work together. Many questions after what I've said here will still remain, and that's okay because part of what I wanted to do this morning, maybe the main thing, was just to get us thinking and to raise the question. So here's some thoughts, and I want to say this, that all these thoughts um, the assumption undergirding everything is prayer and seeking god that is the kind of overall thought um, that we need to come before god in our relationships as a body we need to surrender ourselves and others to him and we need to like seek where he is leading and how he's leading us together I've also included scriptures with each of these. I'm not going to read them. They're just there if you want to write them down and read them yourself or take a picture later at the end, because by the end, they'll be all the points will be up with all their scriptures. You could do that. Um, but I didn't want to read them all because we don't have time for that. Um, so the first thing I think we need to do is assume the best of each other. This is something that I often... I, hold, I actually hold this very powerfully true in my life. It's something I really try to do, to assume the best of people. Have there, been, have there been times in my life where that has burned me? For sure. But I want to assume the best of people. And I want to know people and know their heart. It's easy for us to kind of forget or to get confused about who people are or what people are thinking and we don't really take the time to ask and understand. And, um, and so we need to assume the best and recognize that we are all seeking to follow God and follow Christ in this world and that we're all trying to be faithful to what it is that we're experiencing and seeing. And so let's try to have grace and compassion to each other in that way because we know that we need it if we're honest from others. So that's one thought. I think a second thought is to honor each other, love each other. Um, How are we talking about one another? Are we honoring in the way that we speak about our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether they're within our congregation or elsewhere. Um, especially those where we may find points of divergence in our opinion or our thoughts. How are we honoring one another? A third thought is to surrender the idea of winning. And it's not about winning. It's not about me or you finding out that we are right and they are wrong. That is not a healthy, helpful perspective. It's about journeying with God and being faithful as much as we can to Scripture, to God's heart in the world, to the things that he's calling us to do as a people, to the mission that he's given us. How can we get past the mindset of you know, trying to beat someone down on Twitter with a quick 40 character sentence and win the day how can we seek something better and more life-giving? Love needs to be practical. It's very easy for us to say, I love you, or we should love each other, and it to mean nothing, to be just a banner that we say, a word that we say. We've taken a word that is like hugely significant and we have watered it down. Our love needs to be Practical, and it needs to be costly. It needs to cost us something to love those where there is division, for whatever the reason. That is so significant. We need to learn what that means. I mean, First John 3:16 says, "This is how we know what love is that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's what love is. And so when we say, "Oh yeah, I love them." How have you laid your life down for them? We're better at taking up arms against each other than we are laying down our lives for each other, I think, at times. I think the call is to find practical ways to love. I think we have to remember that we need to keep this idea of unity at the forefront. It's so easy in the midst of whatever it might be. Maybe my personal preferences are being violated and I'm just thinking about what I want or whatever it might be. We need to keep the call to unity at the forefront and always in tension with whatever it is that we are working through. God has called us to be unified so that the world will know that he sent Christ. I can't think of anything more important if we are followers of Jesus for others to know that. And therefore we have to have unity because Jesus has said that he gives the world permission to say, I don't think so when he looks at, our church, at the church and sees us eating each other as opposed to caring for one another. I think it will come to a place where we have to ask God to search our hearts, to change our heart, where we have to be able to lay things down. We have to surrender things to Jesus and just say, like, I don't know what to make of this. I don't know how to hold it anymore, but I need to give it to you and I need to know how to move forward. And I think we need to remember Jesus' prayer that should be burned within us. This is what he prayed as he went to the cross. This is what he prayed for his followers. This is what he wanted us to be so that we could make a difference in our world, so that we could invite the world into the love of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, this dance of unity, that God, who is God himself. But we have to be able to live it out. I'm convinced that there are times when we can be right, but still be wrong. Because even though we might be right about something, we didn't hold it well, and we didn't keep in mind the truth of these things. Now, Forest View, as our particular expression of God's church here in Halton, we too have a mission that we've worked on together over some time, people contributing to, and it's this. To be a community where people meet Jesus and become more like him. Can we unite together and lean into this mission? Can we strive for unity despite disappointments, despite preferences, despite natural differences, and can we make space in our unity that celebrates those? Can we be unified despite places where we don't see eye to eye on this or that or the other thing? Can we agree that people need to meet Jesus, that Jesus is the savior of the world, that he is the one who came and who died for us and has called us to lay down our life for others and to be in unity so that the world can see that it is possible in the midst of a divided and polarized society for God's people, for brothers and sisters to dwell together unity now personally in my life from the time I read those words of Schaefer, I've tried to model this and there's been times where that has been hard where there has been pain in that where there has been uh, I've had to like really surrender some things in order to maintain the unity that I feel God has called us to but as I've done so I've discovered this truth how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Sorry to skip the oil and the dew parts, but you know, you know that's the. So, if we turn to communion, there is one other thing that I think I should maybe mention that could have been point eight in terms of ways to maintain unity. And that is asking for and granting others forgiveness. So Jesus put it this way. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that, you, that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. I don't know anyone's hearts here, but I feel like these are words that are important to keep in mind. The part of our seeking unity together is knowing when we need to both receive forgiveness from others or offer it to them. When we need to say sorry, and when we need to say, you are forgiven. So if I wanna leave that with you, it's a thought. It's a close. Now we're about to turn to communion this morning. And here, before us, is something that has divided Christians over the years. Is this the real body and blood of Jesus? Or is Jesus really present, but it's not really his body and blood? Or is this just a symbol? Do we understand that Christians have divided over this, have broken fellowship with each other because of these kinds of understandings. But here, what we see is we see one loaf. And we see us who are many and who come from all different places and our relationship with God is in all different places. Some of us feel close, some of us feel far away. But all of us who are many, we come to the one loaf to meet Christ and we recognize our oneness and that it is in him, in him alone that we find our unity. And so today as we come, as we receive the body and the blood, maybe we're reminded that it is in this act that we actually are drawn together. That it is in um, what Christ did as he laid his life down for us that binds us even through difference, disagreement, distinction, all these things. We are one. So let's pray. God, thank you that you love us and that you have loved us so much that you gave your life for us. Thank you for the gift of Jesus on the cross, offering his body and his blood. And God, we know it is so easy for us to fall into division. And you've you've called us to be one. And this morning as we come to feed, as we come to take, the bread, and the juice. May we be reminded that we come as distinct people, but as one body to you who has given yourself for each of us individually, but as a people. And that you've given us work to do. That our job is to represent you in this world. And that a part of doing that is learning what it means to struggle together for unity. To walk shoulder to shoulder and to show the world that it can be done. And to show them more importantly that God, you sent Christ and that he is their savior. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.